The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. The Capital Weekly Podcast is a production of Open California and is sponsored by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. This is a special episode of the Capital Weekly Podcast recorded live at Capital Weekly's Conference on Housing Policy, May 26th, 2021. Good morning. Welcome to Capital Weekly's Conference on Housing Policy. I'm Molly Dugan, President of the Open California Board of Directors. Open California is the organization that supports Capital Weekly, the Top 100, the Daily Roundup, uh, our oral history projects, weekly podcasts, and quarterly public policy conferences like this one. Thank you to those who have have and continue to support us and our mission to inform, enlighten, and educate Californians about state policy, excuse me, public policy and state governance. I'd like to thank um, our sponsors, our panelists, and our many moderators for today. I'd also like to remind you that our next event is in August, our annual Top 100 event. Please uh, please be on the lookout for that as well. I'd also like to thank um, our staff, Executive Director, Tim Foster, Editor-in-Chief, John Howard, and Office Manager, Joti Alexander. Now I'd like to introduce Tim Foster, who will tell you more about today's programs and our sponsors. Tim? Thank you, Molly. Uh, So my name is Tim Foster. I'm with the Capital Weekly, and I am the executive director of Open California, which, as Molly said, is the nonprofit which publishes the Capital Weekly. We also publish the Roundup, which is a daily email newsletter you can get for free, uh, keeps you up to date on what's going on in California politics every morning. Uh, We also do these events, and as Molly mentioned, we do Capital Weekly's Top 100, which is sort of our analysis of the 100 people in California who are not elected officials, but who have far more say in what happens in the state than you would ever imagine. So uh, we will be releasing that on August 25th, and uh, I invite you to keep an eye on the Capital Weekly website for that. So... I would be remiss if I did not thank our sponsors. Uh, This event is free today. I'm so glad we're able to make this available to everyone who wanted to participate and to see it. And the reason it's free is because we have underwriting from our sponsors and we just couldn't do this without them. So our sponsors today for this event are TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations, uh, WISPA, the Western States Petroleum Association, KP Public Affairs, CBIA, the California Building Industry Association, Capital Advocacy, Perry Communications, the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, and the California Professional Firefighters. And we really thank them for their support of our programming. Uh, we, again, were a nonprofit. We just couldn't do these things without the support of our underwriters. So with that, I'm going to turn you over to today's first panel. The first panel will look at the effect of the pandemic on housing in California, which has been extraordinarily dramatic. I think we've all seen this. I think the last numbers I saw is that housing prices have actually gone up more than 20% in California in the last year, which is inconceivable. I know many of us, myself included, expected housing prices to drop during the pandemic, which I think they did for a a nanosecond at the very beginning. And then uh, as everyone worked from home, the, the 
housing price went the other way. So I want to thank our moderator today, Liam Dillon. Liam has moderated quite a few of these events for us over the years. He is an expert on this particular area. Uh, he has an exceptional housing podcast, which if I'm not mistaken, Liam uh, is on hold right now, but we'll be back uh, with the name Gimme Shelter, which is the best name for a housing podcast you could possibly have. I think we were very jealous because uh, our podcast is just called the Capital Weekly Podcast, Bo relatively boring. Um, but with that, I'm going to turn this over to uh, Liam. And I will say that if you have any questions, please chime in on the Q&A function. We will save those till the end. And John Howard and I will go through your questions. We will pick the ones that are sort of the best fit. And we will give those to Liam and the panel toward the end of the event. Thanks again. Really appreciate you all uh, signing in here. And again, many thanks to our panelists and to Liam. So Liam, I'm going to turn this over to you. Thanks so much. So good morning, everyone. Thanks for that great introduction. I'm uh, Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. Uh, very excited to be here moderating this uh, this panel on what the pandemic has wrought on California's already uh, difficult uh, and, and troubled uh, housing affordability situation. Um, I've been writing about housing politics in the state for a little more than five years um, in Sacramento for three years. And for the past 18 months, I've been in LA. Um, I'm based here writing about housing issues across the state, but more from a neighborhood level. Um, and thank you, Tim, for mentioning uh, the Gimme Shelter podcast. He's correct that it is on hiatus. Um, but uh, uh, to break a little bit of news here, uh, first thing in the morning, we expect to bring the podcast back uh, with my uh, great new co-host and new housing reporter from CalMatters, uh, Manuela Tobias. Um, we expect to bring it back as soon as next month. So uh, cross, you know, ch check it, take a look out for that uh, sometime in June. So um, I'm going to ask, uh, we have a great set of panelists to discuss this. I'm going to ask them sort of one by one to quickly introduce themselves. Um, and Shanti, why don't we start with you? Hi, everyone. Um, Shanti Singh. I am the Communications and Legislative Director at Coalition of 50 Organizations or so uh, Working in Tenants' Rights Across California. Glad to be here. And Natalie? Hi, good morning. My name is Natalie Holmes. I'm a research fellow at the California Policy Lab, and I'm a PhD student at UC Berkeley's Goldman School of Public Policy. And Helen. Good morning. My name is Helen. I'm one of the co-executive directors of LA Moss, a nonprofit community-based organization in the Los Angeles area. And we are waiting for one more panelist, uh, Constance Griggs-Lazzaroni, uh, the California Association of Mortgage Professionals, and hopefully she'll be able to, to join us uh, soon. So, um, Natalie, I'm going to start with you, and, and how we're going to run this is I'll probably at the beginning direct a question to, to one of the panelists, and then everyone can sort of chime in, um, you know, what, if they have anything to, to add. Um, but Natalie, I want to start with you. You've, you've done some work uh, during the pandemic on where people may or may not uh, be moving. Um, and I want to ask, you know, what did you find in, in your research? Um, and I know that there's been some, you know, since the reports that you put out, some census and other demographic figures that have come out. Um, and so I'm hoping you could also talk about how those, uh, those figures amplified what you, what you found. Sure, thanks. Um, so hope we're pro providing some context here. Um, so from the very onset of the pandemic, I'm sure we all heard stories about people trying to figure out what they were going to do during lockdown, especially, and you know, as the pandemic has continued to stretch on. So um, we uh, at California Policy Lab had just brought on board last spring this new data set, uh, the UC Consumer Credit Panel, that um, 
allows us to look quarterly at where people are moving at a pretty granular geographic level. So uh, question at the top of our minds, are people leaving California because of the pandemic? And what we found uh, was that no, there wasn't an obvious spike in people leaving the state, at least during the last uh, 75% of 2020, of course, the pandemic's still going on. Um, so again, you know, there's been kind of this steady increase in people moving out of the state um, in our data set and others in recent years, but there wasn't an obvious jump in 2020. A couple of things that did stand out though, especially toward the end of 2020, um, fewer people were moving into the state. Um, last month, the, or earlier this month rather, the Department of Finance released its um, estimates about changing population in the state. When I read that, they find this you know, net loss of population. The story that I hear is there were fewer people coming in. That's consistent with what we found. The third point was that uh, within the state, there was some movement. And in particular in the Bay Area and especially San Francisco, uh, we did see people moving out and fewer people coming in. Most of those folks were remaining in the Bay Area and California, um, but, Cal but San Francisco is one area that really stands out that saw a lot of movement, especially early in the pandemic. So let, let me push a little bit on this, and then uh, I definitely want to have uh, Helen and Shotzi weigh on this too. But you know, we, we're going to talk a lot, and we've heard a lot about you know how this has been a very uneven um, pandemic for people economically. Um, white collar workers generally unaffected; those who are able to work from home um, in their uh, salaries and their uh, and their employment. Uh, you know, uh, lower income workers, as essential workers, the folks who had to go out to work um, among the, the 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 service industry, where there were great job losses, huge job losses. You know, obviously very economically affected. Did you find anything, or was there any anything you could point to on whether um, how these sort of migration trends changed for depending on someone's income? Yeah, great question. So we don't observe income in our data, but what we did was to look at the income of neighborhoods that people were leaving from and going to. And uh, historically in recent years, when people from wealthier zip codes move, they're more likely to leave the state. But what we found was at least with this initial crude measure, people originating from the wealthiest 10% of zip codes versus all other zip codes didn't change differently, if that makes sense. So it didn't look like there was a big response uh, localized in uh, wealthy places versus less wealthy places. Does that answer your question? Helen, yeah, Helen Schatz, can you talk about what you've been seeing on on the ground on this on this issue? Yeah, I guess I can go. Um, I mean, you, you know, we have attendance together. In addition to being sort of a coalition, we have a hotline that we run for free, right? And it's run by volunteer trained counselors. So we're getting sort of anecdotally and, and you know unsurprisingly our case backlog is at an all-time high but uh anecdotally anecdotally we are getting a lot of sort of um i guess calls about you know harassment but you know most of the time when people are trying to when people are being forced to move by circumstances or sometimes of course moving on their own and i won't get into the specifics of evictions for this question um, but when people are being forced to leave yeah, I mean, people don't really want to, they only want to move as far as they have to, um, to, in order to be able to like hold on to their job or stay in their community, stay with their family. I mean, people prefer to stay, right? I guess that's not like mind blowing, but, um, but, but yeah, in terms of particularly the more impacted low income workers, people who can't pay their rent, I mean, they really don't most of the time want to leave their communities. They don't want to leave the state. So I do think that, this, uh, I, we don't really see in my experience, uh, in our experience, that many uh, folks, well, I mean, there are people who are migrating to other states out of economic necessity, but that's not 
you know, that's really the last resort for them. We've seen, um, and we work with working class communities of color in Northeast LA. And the, for the first three months of the pandemic, we had a community response, a form of mutual aid, where uh, in some ways we had a hotline, we provided food distribution, cash assistance, kind of what a lot of community organizations have been providing um, during that time. And one thing that was really uh, notable was just the increase in multi-generation families, um, not necessarily out of uh, kind of really in the absence of choice. So what we've seen is kind of the stories of um, essential workers meets overcrowded working conditions. And today, many of our community members would prefer to um, try not to not be in debt and uh, instead pay their debt through their rent and and you know spend less on food and thus we've operated a weekly food distribution as a way to support economic insecurity um, given that desire to not be rent, rent burden um, but for many of our families um, living with families it's possible is is a preferred choice and if it's not possible we have seen a lot of families kind of move out to the suburbs um, just with fear of eviction, knowing that um, the cost of living isn't going to change. So that's what we've been seeing. Uh, Shanti, I want to direct this this next one to you. Um, in, in the wake of the pandemic, uh, the state and many local governments uh, and the court system uh, at one point uh, approved measures that were aimed at preventing evictions. Um, according to some stats we've collected and others, uh, evictions are way down from where they were prior to the prior to the pandemic. But we've also heard lots of stories about people kind of slipping through those uh, the, the the cracks in those in those projections. Um, so uh, I'm going to return to this theme a lot later on, but I'm curious where you, if you could weigh in on where you think these anti eviction rules are working and where they're not. Yeah, so I think that, you know, I mean, formally, the eviction protections we have at the state level, they cover specific type of, they cover evictions for non-payment of rent, right, for temporarily, not in perpetuity. Um, so, you know, not seeing a decrease in those evictions makes sense, because technically, they're, they shouldn't be happening right now, or at least not until June 30th, although hopefully there will be an extension of that. Um, other evictions have continued. Uh, we've definitely seen particularly an uptick in Sort of nuisance evictions, which are typically supposed to be for health and safety reasons, but you know, really sometimes aren't. Um, sometimes they're kind of for uh, dubious reasons um, and can be kind of used to get a tenant out. Um, I, I'll, I'll say we get we're still getting Ellis Act evictions. I think our hotline gets a few of those a week, according to. Uh, um, we're still seeing all those other types of evictions, except for non-payment. And of course, um, there are you know hoops that tenants have to jump through, assuming that they know their rights, assuming that landlords know what the laws are. The laws are very complicated, and you have sort of a patchwork of local protections. You have the state protection. You have the CDC moratorium. It's a lot to it's a lot to navigate. And so people are falling through the cracks with other types of evictions. But also, you know, if you're if you're a tenant and you're in a lot of debt, um, you're already kind of that power balance that exists between you and your landlord is just amplified. Um, and so, you know, we see a lot of people, if they're, if, if they're being harassed, if the situation gets really tense between them and their landlord, um, like Helen and I think Natalie mentioned, like if people don't wanna, you know, accrue more debt and they just wanna leave, you know, um, we are, there's evictions that are on the books and then there's that, this sort of broader umbrella of displacement and people, um, people just leaving and people just not wanting to, wanting to deal with it um, and, you know, like, like I said, like in terms of the, I think the number one complaint that we are getting from tenants on our hotline right now is related to 
harassment of all sorts of different kinds. And so there is that bigger umbrella of displacement that's bigger than just formal evictions on the books, although those are proceeding. Uh, anything you want to add on that, Helen? Um, I would just add that it's been helpful to see a lot of uh, rental assistance programs. And I think, it, especially in the Los Angeles area, the, the last round that just came out, and there was a, a, a best attempt by the city to make it as accessible as possible. And as an organization, we helped many residents try to apply for these programs. And I think at the end of the day, given the requirements, it's still very inaccessible to many residents, especially if they're undocumented, especially if the, the paperwork on the lease and communications with landlords um, is not there. It, it, these barriers are just like added layers of barriers. So in addition to just rent burden, um, there's all this other collateral um, consequence that I think that it's important for policymakers to think about as they're shaping programs. Uh, looks like Constance has joined us. Constance, do you mind just uh, quickly introducing yourself? Can you hear me now? Yes. Sorry. <laughs> and I don't have glasses on, so I couldn't see. Okay, so I'm Constance Lazzaroni. Um, I am the California Association of Mortgage Professionals President for the Central Valley. Um, I have been very active in the association for many years. I served as president many years and previously as government um, affairs chair. I've been in the industry about 28 years. So uh, good timing on logging on because I have my first question ready for you uh, right now. Um, and so um, home foreclosures the, uh, were at, sort of at the center of the Great Recession a dozen years ago. Um, but as we noted at the top, um, you know, white collar workers, more likely to be homeowners, um, you know, largely spared economically during this time, uh, during this downturn and home prices have shot up. And so I'm hoping you can kind of contrast what's happening now in the mortgage market to what happened, um, you know, a dozen years ago during the, 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 the last uh, economic, significant economic downturn? Well, I think previously what really drove the foreclosure um, rate was more the type of programs and the type of aggressive, over-aggressive lending. There was these stated programs for people who were like, they could work at Macy's and have, as long as they had a high credit score, they could basically say they made whatever they wanted. So that allowed people to get in way over their heads. Um, I think that really was the, what drove the foreclosures. Um, that and the other kind of um, adjustable type lending loans that people were getting into that they really didn't understand. Um, they were incentive, the loan officers were incentivized to push those. I think those are really what drove the foreclosures. Um, if people were actually in a home that was, was within their budget, um, they would have survived it a little bit better. They would have, if they were required to have reserves, they would have survived it a little bit better. So when you look at what's going on now, the things that we're gonna be affected by are completely different. Right now, the you know, risk drives lending. So the, the rates came down, um, the prices have gone up, prices have gone up because people are you know, coming in here, especially in Central Valley from everywhere because they can work remotely. So it is driving the, um, the prices up. That, in turn, is getting a lot of these variable income, lower economic families driven right out of the market. So if they are trying to buy up right now, that's going to cause them issues. But it's, it's, I do not see it being more of a foreclosure-driven issue um, as, unless you know, the economy completely crashes. But I think that it's, I, I do not see it happening like it did before. 
So you uh, do you have any like just any quick stats on or any quick figures on uh, like what uh, delinquency rates are or how they make compare? I mean, I know, you know, obviously they're way, way lower, right, than they were uh, 12 right. years ago and things like that. Yeah. Well, they're low and we won't we won't really see those in our association until like after this, you know, as we're right. gathering this and stuff, we won't really see it. But I can tell you one of the things that we really see is that the you were talking previously about the um, renters and the moratoriums on, on that. That has affected us. Um, the in the beginning of the pandemic, you know, even to investors and in buying investment properties or refinancing investment properties, the rates were very low still. It was very advantageous for them to do that. However, as these moratoriums started to come into um, either be lifting or they found out that they weren't necessarily working as they were intended, uh, Fannie and Freddie were instantly overnight shot up. They did not want this business anymore. They considered it too risky. So normally if there's going to be some significant, you know, rate increases, pricing level adjustments, things like that, we get a little bit of notice. I've never seen such happen as we did about four months ago, five months ago. Overnight, Fannie and Freddie said that they just did not want those anymore. They were too high a risk. The moratoriums were not working as they expected. And the type of, of renter and the, the, the type of jobs that a lot of them have or ones that they were either going to be losing or cut back on hours or cut back on, on pay and such. So they instantly said too much risk and shot those up and made it not advantageous for investors to refinance. And if they buy, they're going to be paying the price that the risk requires. Um. I, I want to move to the, the rental assistance programs that are uh, now being offered across the state. Um, there's more than $5 billion um, available now to help renters uh, pay off what they owe in back rent and, uh, and make landlords uh, whole or mostly whole in some cases, which is really an extraordinary um, sum. Um, uh, but there have been many stories uh, about the money being, you know, at the state level, being slow to distribute and not taking into account the variety of ways uh, that people act or acted when they got behind on rent. And, and Helen um, specifically alluded to this, um, you know, and Shanti as well earlier. Um, you know, uh, for instance, I reported a story up in San Francisco where a, a mother of, of three uh, kids lost her house cleaning job at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, then in the fall, her husband got uh, COVID-19, lost his job at a warehouse. With the loss of all their income, the landlords started pressuring them and they left their home to move in with the woman's um, mother. So it became 10 people in a, in a, in a three-bedroom apartment. I mean, this is exactly a scenario that, that, that Helen had laid out earlier. Uh, then, that, then that landlord, the landlord of the, of the, uh, of the uh, a grandmother, found out and for, then forced out those who had moved in. Um, so here's a family clearly needs rent relief, right? Clearly needs rental assistance. Um, but, they, but because they technically don't owe anything to a specific landlord, they don't qualify for the significant sum in uh, uh, that could be or, or, you know available. Um, and so, um, Helen, I'm hoping you can kind of elaborate more. You know, it sounds like stories like this um, sound familiar to you in terms of what you've been seeing, you know, on the ground. Um, and how does this explain? Do you think what's been happening uh, at both the state and local levels with these uh, with these rental assistance programs? In one, on one hand, it's it's the most kind of uh incredible large pot of funds we're seeing for renters um, than ever before. And I think, you know, that's something to be said and to have, um, it, in my case, the city of Los Angeles quickly come up with a program to deploy the funds. And I think that given 
the added layer of challenges that in our case, working class people are facing in terms of just some, some being undocumented, many living in situations where there isn't a clear lease situation is that um, in the tenants that we have worked with, um, for in each case, there's, you know, sometimes just not knowing that this program exists and the application process being really hard, even if there's a hotline from the city, even if, if it's online um, and it's clear, it's just, there's so many requirements that it's exhausting. And um, there there isn't every single layer of proof that a renter can provide in order to have their debt forgiven. And I think add on language access, like if you add on a family that, is undocumented, does not, English is not their primary language. They do not have proof of residency. Um, they're undocumented and they don't wanna share the information of all the tenants in the house. You, and you can keep on adding to these uh, individual situations. It makes these programs inaccessible. And you add on the layer of um, not knowing if the landlord is gonna participate, like in, in, the, in the case of Los Angeles, the landlord has to forgive 20% of that debt. And for landlords who don't want that, and they actually want to be able to evict their tenant in the future once the moratorium is lifted, there's this added layer of risk. So I think for, for us as a team, and as we work with community members, um, one thing that keeps on coming up is that in this case, there is constantly an attempt to think about a, a specific situation, rent, and thinking of a short-term resolution without actually addressing what is that long-term holistic, how do you tie housing debt with job, with health healthcare? Um, and I think that is something that for the first time during this time, there are so many other programs, like how do you couple PPP with small business support, coupled with kind of workforce um, support? And I think that those are the complexities of uh, the lives of our residents who see it all as one, it's all complicated and intertwined. Uh, anyone else want to want to weigh in on the rental assistance efforts and and where um, where they're working and where they're not? Can um, you know? I think Helen covered most of the problems, but just also want to yeah, you know, as part of your story, Liam. I mean, I've heard that story too a, a million times. Besides all of these renters who are trying to access the rent relief program, have uncooperative landlords trying to evict them, even serving them notices that are kind of bogus. Um, but you know, we've also talked to so many renters who. You know, they've maxed out their credit cards, they used up their unemployment checks, they took loans from families, sometimes they took loans of a more predatory nature than from families, um, to just to cover this rent, you know, and to cover this debt. Um, and so, and there's also folks, of course, who eventually who did accrue a significant amount of debt and then moved to avoid collecting more debt, and they too are having access, like difficulties getting any kind of compensation or rent relief. So, you know, we don't really... We, we are going to leave a lot of renters behind if we don't not only improve the program for people who do qualify, but actually sort of expand the scope. And like Helen said, look at what real recovery looks like for renters. And there's 18 million of them in California. We can't afford not to. So what let's just let's stay on this topic, because, again, I think like it would be honestly a, a, a tragedy. Um, and I don't think that that's too strong to leave you know, potentially billions of dollars on the table um, uh, when there's such great need. And even if that need is not sort of um, uh, documented or, um, uh, you know, fits the specifics of this particular program, right? But as you said about borrowing from family members or maxing out credit cards or taking out, you know, um, predatory loans, I mean, 
clearly the need, you know, the, the need is there. So how, and this is open to everyone, you know, what should be done, do you think, to improve this program to, to make sure that um, the state and, and localities do not, do not leave the money that's available for rental assistance um, on the table? I want to lift up uh, a local effort, the Keep LA House effort, which is part of the Healthy LA Coalition, which has been advocating uh, on three elements. One, addressing the gaps in rental assistance that we talked about. Um, two, seizing and eliminating remaining rent debt, which can take some work. And then three, which is a little bit more controversial, ending evictions and the collateral consequences of rent debt. So I think this agenda kind of speaks to what's possible if we really want to close that gap. Um, and I think what is also important to think about is that without a radical focus on that, we're just gonna be piecemealing our support and hoping that we like slowly close the gap with one program at a time um, and it's not gonna be enough. I think one thing that we're starting to see and I don't deal a lot in the rental sections as you guys are talking about, but as like there's all this remote working and we're trying to get, we're starting to get people here in the Central Valley coming from the Bay Area and it's driving up prices like crazy. That's also driving up rental prices. So for on the rental side, it'd be really nice to see not total rent control, but something in place to help these people to keep the rents down. Because that's what we're seeing too, is people are moving in multifamilies um, because, you know, the, the rent's just being shot at. So, and that's again, tied to the housing prices being shot up. So nice to help them stabilize those. Uh, Natalie, Chanti, anything on improving rental assistance efforts? Yeah, I mean, we're hearing that efforts are underway. You know, we are doing our best to try to work with some of these um, state departments on making the process easier. But, you know, I think that we do have to also, as part of what, what Helen was saying, like combat, there's a perception in Sacramento um, that, you know, we can't uh, let, how would I say this? You know, we, we can't let someone undeserving accidentally get this money. <laughs> and um, that, unfortunately, that mindset leads to a lot of policies that might sound great on paper, but once they're implemented in reality, create a lot of hoops that people can't jump through. And, you know, the less privileged you are, the harder it is to jump through those hoops, right? So, I mean, I really do think that if we continue to see issues with the rent relief program, um, particularly on like language justice and, and issues for undocumented folks, but also just issues for low-income folks in general who the money is for, I do think we really need to have that shift that narrative and shift that thinking that the issue is not, you know, that some tenant is going to, you know, drive a Tesla with their free rent money or something <laughs> out of out of the city and never to be seen again or something like it's not it's not that it's that, you know, people are falling through the cracks because the hoops are there. The hoops are too many. They're too great. And I want to add that what has been fascinating during this time is the, the abundance of, in some ways, cash, cash assistance. Uh, we, we, we shared over 20,000 directly to families and found that a majority of families um, use that money for, to pay for rent. And, uh, the in the past year, you know, LA launched the Angelino Fund, and now there's discussions of universal basic income pilot programs throughout the state. So there, sorry, I also uh, sorry, Helen, I just want to cut you off quickly. That that twenty thousand was that money that you guys raised on your own, or was that like from a state is, or some public? It, system? it was yeah, yeah. the money that we raised uh, on our own from funders who wanted to support kind of a community yeah. response. Um, and and I think lots of organizations throughout Los Angeles, community based organizations, had some form of that 
for their community. Um, but the city also had its version of that in terms of the Angelino Fund providing, I think it was $500 of, um, of a debit card. And I think that conversations like that kind of speak to what Shanti was talking about, which is empowering residents directly to be able to take care of themselves, to spend money on what is the most essential instead of programs that have many, many layers of, you know, needing to provide the burden of proof. Um, so I want to point to that as a form of existing policy that is being explored that could be a great model for how do we kind of learn from other more broader efforts to uh, address kind of rent gap. Uh, this has been referenced, I think, a couple times, um, but there's a, a key date coming relatively soon, uh, June 30th, uh, when the state's eviction protections are set to expire. Um, what are, for those who in the know here, uh, what are the conversations happening now uh, around this issue across the state? And, and, and what are the expectations of, uh, of, of, uh, of what may happen um, with respect to um, any, uh, any state policy uh, addressing that, that issue? And my guess is Shanti may be the best person equipped to try to answer that. Yeah. So right now, I mean, we're going to be seeing this. It, it's 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 a pretty opaque situation right now because it's going to go through the budget reconcil or through the budget process, um, which is not like traditionally running a bill, which we have tried to do twice um, with Assemblymember David Chu and others. Um, but this time, it's really just like just like in January, it's going to kind of happen through the budget process, which means that in terms of we can, we can look at the governor's budget revise that he put out. Um, obviously, Governor Newsom, uh, you know, recently declared that, you know, he's going to shift to 100% compensation for renters. We'll see what the specifics and the implementation of that is. That's a step in the right direction, but we still don't really know what that looks like. And so any sort of extension of existing protections, any kind of policy changes or extensions, they're all going to happen through this budget process. And that's especially opaque. I mean, that's opaque to me. It's certainly opaque to the public and to, to renters and landlords. So um, that has to happen by June 30th. Obviously, June 30th is now the deadline that we're looking at um, for protections to expire. We are once again trying to extend that. But trying to do so in a way that's more that's less about picking an arbitrary date when we think that the pandemic will magically end and everyone will be fine. Um, but actually looking at, you know, for example, like what are is employment recovering in the service economy? Like what are these like indicators of economic recovery for the most vulnerable people? What are indicators for public health? Although I think we're doing pretty well on that measure, knock on wood, um, you know, that we can actually tie these protections to in terms of like determining what a real recovery looks like. When have people really recovered? So we're trying not to think about it, you know, from the advocacy side as like, there's some magic date. Um, People tend to in Sacramento tend to look for a magic date, um, but you know we are hoping and expecting um, that these protections will be extended. And at this point, considering how much of the rent relief program money has not gone out, I think the expectation was originally that there would be more money out at this point. But it really does seem like we're not going to by by the time June 30th rolls around um, that we're really a lot of people, if not most people, are not going to get the money that they applied for yet. Um, then we absolutely need to extended so that they don't get evicted through no fault of their own when they're eligible, they've applied for relief, all of that. Um, but in terms of what the specifics of that are, I mean, it is a very opaque process. Uh, I'm curious, what, be, yeah, go ahead, sorry, yeah. Mm -hmm. One thing that would be really helpful is if some of this money was used maybe to, in a different format as far as helping relieve um, rental owners of their mortgage to share with their mortgage payment, 
and they would may, maybe need, you know, they'd be more forgiving when the lower income people could not pay the rent because at the end of the day, they're still responsible for that payment. So that's kind of, I think, where the tussle comes in is, you know, we want to give this break to the lower income people, um, but the landlord still owes this money. So if we could channel it maybe a different way as well and hit it from both ends so that they're given a break and if they participate in this program, they're given some kind of forgiveness and from these lenders and the money was shuffled through that way, it can maybe help close the gap a little bit better in the issue if they hit it both angles. So you're talking about more of an incentive. I mean, you know, the, the, the landlords still, if they weren't collecting rent, um, uh, still have to pay property taxes, still have to, you know, pay maintenance, still have to pay all those sorts of things. And, and more yeah. and payments on their right. loans that they have. Right. Left. So, right. you know. Um, what's the, what's sort of the, the big fear here? And I, I, I frankly, I wish I had looked up the latest stats on um, the census does a survey and has been doing surveys on people who are behind on, uh, on, uh, on their rent. Um, by state and, and by metro area. Um, I, I don't have those stats ready to hand. Um, but I'm curious, what, what are the sort of the big concerns if this, these protections expire um, June 30th? Um, you know, we've, there was a, a lot of conversation over the past year about a potential wave of eviction, about people being you know, behind. Um, what, to what extent are people sort of still worried about that sort of situation um, occurring, you know, if, uh, if the protections end, um, uh, June 30th, or even ultimately once they do end. So maybe Helen, Shanti, um, you know, I, I mean, how big is the scale of people who are behind right now? Um, and, and, and how worried are you about sort of the eventual end for what that means for those folks when the protection, when the protections go away? Um, where we work in Northeast LA is also in LA is a, you know, many neighborhoods are hot markets and, uh, right behind me is the Los Angeles river. And, you know, many, I think Liam, you probably wrote stories about kind of issues of displacement, um, in areas where there are major investments in, in parks and transit. And I think, um, the fear we have is kind of the coupling kind of the housing afford unaffordability in the Los Angeles area in neighborhoods that are rapidly changing, where there are a lot of uh, middle-class white collar workers who are able to, to buy homes, to be able to uh, rent the new units. And so I think that the, the conversation is different for neighborhoods where there is that change and there is that big risk of displacement. And you couple that with kind of the layers of structural racism that got amplified during COVID. And I think that's kind of the fear. It's not just that June date, but what does it look like? Because it's this layering of a, of a change in many of these communities that have been happening for a long time. And um, I think what will be interesting to see is like it, across the street, many cities and jurisdictions will have their housing elements due this year, um, coupled with like local planning. And for the first time, because of the pandemic, there are these commerce and and because of what's going on in our country, there are these conversations of what does it look like to change our land use policies, to change zoning, to have elements like the first right of return and tenant replacement and one for one replacement and um, all, all the issues that I think Shanti has been advocating for in her work, but being able to connect it with the lived experience of a renter today and what will be the lived experience of a tenants of tomorrow. 
Uh, Natalie, I want to c- come back to you to delete this one, but uh, it's a question that's open to, to everyone. We're actually you know, hoping everyone weighs in. Um, there's been a lot of conversation about California losing a congressional seat uh, because its population growth was slower than everywhere else. Um, and for now, for the first time, and you referenced this um, in your opening r- remarks, um, the state lost population in, uh, in, uh, in 2020. Um, a lot of experts are saying um, the primary driver of this because we're, lowing, we're losing lower and middle, middle income people to other, uh, to other states. It's the high cost of housing. Uh, and so with what's happening in the, in the housing market now um, and with what you expect to happen as the virus continues for, continues to wane here, um, how do you expect this, this, this trend will be affected? Great question. And I would just say I don't have a crystal ball right off the bat. Um, <laughs> we're, uh, I, I have uh, an extension of the data that we looked at in March for the first quarter of 2021 and unfortunately haven't quite looked at it yet. So I'm, I'm really curious, as I know a lot of people are, to see if uh, kind of that divergence between people leaving the state and people coming into the state that we saw in the latter half of 2020 has continued. Um, so that's one thing. Um, you know, I'm a graduate student. I certainly understand that the high cost of housing in the state and especially the Bay Area is really, you know, it, it affects our daily life. Um, and it, it makes sense to me personally that that's one of the big things that, you know, affects where people are choosing to move in the future. Um, you know, one thing that I'm curious about, and we won't know until the new data comes in kind of throughout this year is whether uh, kind of that drop in people coming in had to do with people just kind of putting pause on their plans for bigger moves during the pandemic to wait to see how things shake out. Um, So I don't don't know yet whether, you know, this is um, a that gap between people leaving and coming in is a trend that's going to continue. Uh, My hunch is that it'll kind of close a little bit as we move forward. Um, but yeah, longer term, it, I think it just makes sense that the high cost of housing here and, you know, cost of living uh, does shape where people decide to live. I would say also the fact that a lot of people are going to, companies are going to just find that allowing people to work remote has worked so well and cut down their cost. In the Central Valley, we're seeing that just from both ends of the state people and influx because our, our pricing even though it's rising, it's much lower than, you know, Northern or Southern California. So I would say that if you take that and equate it to, you know, people being able to move to Midwest and and places like that, where the housing is extremely lower, that that's going to drive that as well. Yeah, I guess I'll just add to, I think we're going to keep seeing, you know, we talk about chains of sort of chains of displacement. So, you know, for example, I live in San Francisco right now. So, um, you know, the the chain that starts in uh, in Silicon Valley and goes up to San Francisco, goes to Oakland, up the I-80 corridor to Sacramento, back down into the Central Valley. That's sort of the NorCal chain and you have the Southern California chain. And like Constance says, a lot of that is in the Central Valley. And then that forces folks in Central Valley to move to Nevada or, or further afield. So, um, you know, in the, in the sort of sense of that the pandemic is not something, I mean, it's only just exacerbating trends that were already existing um, and exacerbating social inequalities that were already existing. Yeah, we expect to see a lot of that. It's great, for example, like I'm really glad that there's folks like Natalie actually researching this because it really does keep us up at night wondering, not being able to quantify that kind of broader displacement that you can't really measure by looking at how many evictions are happening in court. So um, I'm, I'm sure that that will continue um, and it's, it's unfortunate. <laughs> it's really, really bad. So I, I want to kind of, I think that's a good jumping off point for this. You know, I mean, we've been talking, uh, you know, uh, about how, you know, we were writing about how the state's housing affordability crisis, you know, for many years prior to, uh, 
prior to um, the pandemic and the crisis is only going up the chain where not only uh, the lo lowest income workers and lowest income families were facing housing cost pressures, but that was being exacerbated through, you know, through the middle class and, and in some cases upper middle class folks trying to, to live affordably or, or be able to buy homes. Um, and given sort of the economic outcomes that we've discussed as a result of the pandemic, it only seems, uh, it, you know, uh, from a kind of a scary perspective, even scarier perspective, that these inequality trends are only going to get worse, right? I mean, you have folks, again, uh, white collar workers have done well, um, or relatively well, or just well, I mean, not even relatively well, during the pandemic, where um, the economic distress has really been with, with lower income, uh, lower income workers. So how do you see, you know, I want to just drill down this a little more, how do you see the existing housing affordability problems um, in the state changing or being exacerbated by, uh, you know, what has happened over over the past year? And this is also open to everyone. Say the last part of your question again. How do you see the existing housing affordability challenges that we've been grappling with for many years in the state um, changing or being exacerbated by what's happened in the past year? I would say, again, it's the spread of, you know, the lower class and, you know, even that lower class and the middle class. I mean, the, the things that are happening now with people gathering debt, um, you know, extreme debt, um, missing payments and things like that, that's going to carry with them for a while. So for, for us, we're concerned because that's going to keep them out of the house buying market. Um, we are actually pushing for things like for um, things for forgiveness during this time with uh, on credit, um, you know, that will, will not keep them from it. You have many people moving in multiple families to allow them to get, you know, maybe into the purchasing of a home um, out because they like said as, as the prices go up, rents going up so we do have families coming in saying you know they want to look at buying you know there's more of them in a house can they pull their income and things like that so that would that we're hoping for for programs like that to open up um that you know will allow some of the forgiveness of what's happened during the pandemic to actually be reflected um you know not so much to impact their credit which will you know keep them out of that so that, that's some of the things that we're pushing for but i definitely think that this this is the raising of the prices and stuff is going to push the lower economic class to where they're not going to have a chance to buy. They're going to need to move because rents are going up. So we're very you know, concerned about that. It's interesting to hear Constance talk about um, like a path towards home ownership because I think for many of our community members, that's that's not even in the realm of possibility. And the, the, the realm of possibility is just thinking, how do I stay where I am? And if that's not possible, what are the rental options out there? So I think what has happened in the past year is not only are housing prices in terms of purchase much higher um, and very competitive, um, but even the rental market is is hard. And if you're if you have debt, if you you know you're not going to have recommendation from your previous landlord, it, it's going to even be harder. And it really just amplifies the uh, existing trends of um, just renter insecurity, especially in neighborhoods that have a very heightened um, displacement pressure. And I think that just amplifies. So in, in the case of where we work at LA Mass, um, who is purchasing homes, um, who the rental market is geared towards, it's not for working class families. Yeah, it's unfortunate that, you know, when, when we do have this rising market of, of, in home prices, 
that the rents go up as well because it does put these people that are renters, lower economic renters, you know, in a much more harsh position. But like I said, we've definitely seen some some people trying to families trying to create solutions to that with multifamily, you know, when they were independently renting, but coming in to see if they were to pull their money and pull their credit, who still has working credit, they can maybe move in and buy something together so that they're not able to be displaced by by the rental. So, and that's not necessarily anything we have stats on. It's just something that we're seeing just in my company alone. Um, I would say, you know, all of us, everybody on my team has had somebody come in with, you know, you have, Normally, you have two people sitting across from you applying for a loan, but I've seen it where we've needed the conference room because you've got six people. They all want their, their credit checked. You know, here's our job income. Um, you know, who can who could qualify to maybe go on this loan together? So it's the, the families themselves maybe not wanting to be in a position to be so easily displaced, trying to come up with their own solutions of what can we do? Because as of now, I mean, for what the rising rent is, you know, there's a house that may be in a, a lower income neighborhood that they would have to go to, but then they couldn't have somebody lowering it over them, of, you know, evicting them. As long as they could pull their money as a family and make that one payment, you know. So it's just something interesting that we've talked about uh, as, as people trying to create their own solutions instead of relying on, you know, the system or the government or to come through with what's coming through. They're trying to find their own solutions as a family, which found interesting. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's definitely debt, like both Helen and Constance said, rent debt, mortgage debt. Um, one thing that we're concerned about, particularly, you know, with Tenants Together's history, we were founded after the 2008 foreclosure crisis because there were foreclosures that were affecting not only the, the people who were subject to those predatory foreclosures, but then also sometimes those people were renting out to tenants. So then the tenant and the homeowner got evicted, right? And so that's actually like where we came from as an organization. Um, and so one thing that we are definitely very concerned about is particularly, you know, if certain like smaller property owners go under, um, that are we going to see corporate consolidation of housing on the scale that we saw in 2008? Are we going to start seeing, you know, we're already seeing institutional players like Blackstone getting right back into the housing market, buying up now, they're buying apartment complexes, not just single family homes like they used to. That sort of lack of transparency and that consolidation has just gotten worse in the 13 years that we've been, 13 years that we've been around STT. And, you know, considering the horrors of what we saw in 2008, you know, are we going to see something happen again as sort of a, a you know, a almost like disaster capitalism <laughs> is it, um, in after this pandemic, right? Because that's not something that we, that's not something that we want to see. I, that's not good for renters in our opinion. But we're going to see it. I mean, we're going to see something like that. There's <laughs> uh, well, somebody to make money on it. And that's going to be, you know, the, the companies like Blackstone and other ones like them for sure. So let, let me ask, uh, I'm going to ask one more question uh, of everybody, and then uh, we'll get to some of your audience questions. And please continue to try to drop them in the, the Q&A box here so we can get to as many as we can. Uh, but I want to talk, um, and some of you have referenced this already, but about solutions here. Um, and I'd like um, perhaps each of you to relate either one big solution or one small solution to 
um, how uh, something that has occurred in the past year in the housing space um, in terms of uh, either a new problem in housing affordability or a problem that has been greatly exacerbated over over the past year. What's you know one thing, either a big idea or kind of a a, a, a smaller idea that, that you would uh, choose or pick to try to address some of the, the these problems and concerns? Well, for us, it would be um, better down payment assistance programs um, that. The current down payment assistance programs that could actually help people take control of their situation and possibly get into homeownership, they are, they're designed for the lender to make money versus, I mean, if we're going to truly help somebody with a down payment assistance program, let's remove some of the fees that are associated with it. Let's actually maybe make it more um, liberal um, credit guidelines that are allowed, especially because the people who have gone through this pandemic that have in- encountered more debt, lost income, um, maybe missed a payment here or there, you know, these to get into any kind of down payment assistance program is super strict type guidelines. So I think that we need to loosen them, be a little more forgiving. Um, we, we still need to always have the ability to repay, which is a big thing in our industry. And that needs to be there, but maybe, maybe look at their ability to pay moving forward and like a present house shot instead of reflecting over what's happened during the pandemic. Maybe remove that, look at where they were before that, you know, where their credit was before that, where their income was before that. Because what's going on right now is going to plague people and keep them from moving into homeownership, you know, for a few years to come. So I would think if we could design some programs, use some of this money to maybe, you know, whether it be investor specific, maybe not even Fannie or Freddie, but investor specific and um, agencies such as California Finance Agency, um, Cal Hoffa, places like that funnel more money through them, we could actually have some better programs to help these people that, you know, uh, that, that maybe don't have learned from this and don't want to be under the thumb of a landlord. Help them go into homeownership by, by putting um, things in place just to help them get into a home that's hindering them now. So I would really like to see, that's one of the things that we've been working with, um, you know, Sacramento, you know, some of the politicians about is trying to design some actual programs that that are that makes sense um, for down homeless. Anyone else on big or small solutions? Yes, um, our, our sort of I'll, I'll I'll pitch our little slogan that we have in our sort of coalition that working on these policies. So you know, like kind of together, uh, Ace Housing Now, Pico, all of us. Like we're trying to work the framework, the mindset we're trying to put ourselves in for the rest of the year is no renter left behind, and that really means no, not a single one, right? And so. That's kind of, you know, trying to center the suite of policies that we want, which can get very wonky, um, very, like, very difficult. It's part of the Sacramento sausage making process. But really, the idea is that, like, you know, in the long, like, we cannot in the long term let anyone fall through the cracks because, you know, it's not just that we already have debt crises like medical debt and student debt and all these things that we've been talking about for years and years. We can't add rental debt to that. Like we have to actually ensure that someone is going to be made whole at the end of this and is not just going to hobble out of this pandemic and we're going to forget about them because it's going to affect our economy, our society, like just California in general for years and years to come if somebody is, you know, affected in a way that's going to hurt them for possibly decades. So that's kind of no renter left behind is sort of our our sort of umbrella of, of thinking. Yeah, that's very similar to the kind of the LA base, uh, keep LA house of um, you know eliminating debt and, and ending evictions. And I think on top of that, um, 
you know, we see that there has been lots of attention on like, how do we address homelessness and having very, in a very short period of time, kind of the, you know, and we're going to talk about it a little bit later, um, housing that is pops up short period of time with low costs. And there is a traditional tax credit market for affordable housing. And I think in between is what's missing. It's like, there are so many renters that are naturally occurring affordable housing that doesn't have you know, covenants or tax breaks on it and thinking about how do we kind of be able to protect those units um, because they are going to change and they're, they're leaving the market um, and thinking about what does that look like as, as policy keeps on changing with land use and as we're discussing like more progressive housing solutions. So I think that's something that it would be great to have more discussion on. And I'm really curious about what, you know, what's the future of universal basic income and cash assistance and, and like what happens after these, all these pilot programs that are being proposed um, end up having findings like it, it could be much cheaper and have a higher impact than all the complex programs that uh, get created through the sacramental sausage making process that Shanti talked about. Um, and I think one thing that has been interesting to think about is uh, uh, one of the programs that we have is on how can we incentivize average homeowners to become uh, affordable housing providers um, through the Section 8 program, through, you know, uh, accessory dwelling units. And imagine if like that we didn't just didn't have a cap on our Section 8 vouchers. And if we were able to um, have everyone who was income eligible be able to benefit uh, and be able to access that. So I think about what are the programs that are currently in existence, but they're inaccessible because it's capped and thinking about how do we minimize, you know, get more funding for programs like that or make or design programs like our rent assistance with the most vulnerable in mind and kind of remove all those layers of bureaucracy. I can, I can imagine we can, we can get all that rent um, assistant money out if we change the process and if we just didn't assume that we're designing to avoid, um, you know, the few people who might be cheating the system and actually start with, um, element of, of trust and um, support. Natalie, any thoughts here, solutions? I was gonna say, I, I have more of a 10,000 foot view and have been sure. really inspired. No, it's all right. Uh, listening to Helen, Shanti and Constance talk about more direct experience of people on the ground living this. Um, for my part as a researcher, uh, I would really like to see if we can do a better job quantifying displacement, seeing if we can kind of disentangle who's truly being displaced from who's, you know, making a, a choice to move somewhere and then see if we can follow people over time just to see where they're going, how they're, how they're doing after they're, they're pushed out. Um, and I think understanding, uh, you know, in, in raw numbers, just kind of the scale of what's happening could be really illuminating. So I'm going to move to some, some audience questions now. Uh, the first one is, is from um, uh, Ryan, Bell, uh, and I think it's directed at Constance, but I think I think everybody who, who's dealt with this program might be able to answer it. Um, there are tenants who are turning down rental assistance, and I'm sorry, uh, landlords that are turning down uh, rental assistance. Um, why? Um, and you know, again, the, as the current program is structured at the state level, uh, uh, landlords are able to get uh, eighty percent of that uh, uh, rent debt uh, back from the state um, uh, that their tenants so if they waive 20%, um, although the governor, uh, and someone could correct if I'm wrong on, on the specifics, but as proposed, 100% um, rent relief um, uh, and, and landlords getting 100% of the debt that's owed uh, through the current uh, budget process, although that has yet to be approved. Um, and so why are um, uh, landlords um, turning down uh, money from, 
from uh, from these programs? Um, I would think that the only thing that would come to mind is is why they would is is sometimes it might affect them on something else that they're trying to do. Um, I'm, it doesn't really make sense that they they would unless it's going to affect something on their credit, unless it's something that they're going to have to count as either income um, based on claiming like on their taxes or something. Uh, I'm, I'm not really familiar with exactly that the ins and outs of that program because there's nothing that I'm aware of that would keep them from doing it. And we do see some of them turning down like some of these PPP programs because um, as it's going to affect them on how they qualify for something else. If there's some kind of um, a loan that they're getting on that and it's going to require like, a payment to reflect for some time, even if it's going to be forgiven. Um, also, if they're taking some of these um, uh, forbearance um, a lot of them are foregoing the forbearance options because it will mm-hmm. affect them on what else they might be trying to do. Like if they're trying to buy something else or qualify for something else, these forbearance things, that's one of the things that's disqualifying them uh, while they're in it. They have to actually be back out of the forbearance before they can have made at least a certain percentage of the forbearance payments back before they can qualify for something else. So I would think it might be something similar to that. The only reason that they would not participate in it. Uh, Helen or Shanti, in your experience, uh, w- why uh, have you seen landlords? Um, and, and if I recall correctly, there may be some uh, sort of strings attached to this in terms of uh, being unable to uh, evict tenants in the future for a certain period of time, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so a- a- any insight as to, as to why landlords may be um, uh, not wanting to participate in, in, in receiving some of this assistance? I think just through speculation, um, uh, on our part is thinking about, you know, turning down these assistance program does mean that it will be slightly easier uh, when the eviction moratoriums are lifted um, to move forward with eviction. So I think that for, for some of um, our tenants that aren't getting their landlord support, um, that's their best guess. Yeah, I would agree with that, but that's probably more likely. Yeah, I, I concur with Helen and that's consistent with what we're seeing. You know, we've obviously been very trying to encourage landlords who like, especially those who are behind on mortgage payments. Right. You know, I, I don't, I don't necessarily think it's, it's hard to tell without more concrete data. I, I don't necessarily think that folks who are really like, like landlords who are really struggling right now are, you know, turning down this relief, but you know, we are seeing a lot of that kind of, uh, out of, I guess, atavistic is the right word behavior that seems to be economically irrational, like 80-20, it's such a good deal. Why wouldn't you take it? But, you know, some people think that they can do better. Some people just want to evict. Um, and, and even some folks think that that, that that 20%, and of course, like you said, we'll see how this changes with the new Newsom announcement, if it's just going to be 100% now. Um, but, you know, more 80-20 sounds amazing, but there are actually, there's a, there's a pool of folks who really even just think that 20% is, is an imposition, uh, that 20%, I'm referring to the 20% uh, forgiveness required for 80% of the back rent owed. Yeah, you know, and I guess there are interesting, I guess, I don't know, vagaries is the right word of the, the housing markets in, in certain uh, areas, particularly those that are under rent control, right, like, like Los Angeles and San Francisco. And so, 
Um, you know, in some cases, you've had tenants perhaps living in, in, in these apartments for quite some time um, uh, with very low rents compared to what the, the market would be able to charge. And so even though the market, and we haven't really talked about this very much, um, but for certain segments of the rental market, uh, rents have declined significantly, um, you know, over 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 the past year in, in central cities. And so you could, I, I could imagine a scenario where a landlord might feel like they have an incentive to perhaps reject the money right now with the uh, idea being if they can evict a tenant who's been paying you know below market rents for some time and then be able to find a new tenant um who uh, uh, uh at rates even though they were market rates are lower than where they were last year or two or three years ago still significantly higher than what that tenant is paying right so there are, are some potential economic incentives in there that that could that could be driving some of this as well does that make that sound um right to, or like a potential to folks or Absolutely. We're, we're still seeing yeah. Ellis Acts every week. So yeah. 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 You just you quickly describe what Ellis Act is for folks who may not know. Oh, I'm oh, sorry. Oh. I should. Yeah. 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 So um, the Ellis Act was designed to allow landlords. I mean, it was designed for a sensible reason to allow landlords to sort of exit the rental market. But uh, essentially, you know, over time, over successive court decisions, its uh, latitude legally was widened greatly in the 1990s and it started to be used. Um, to basically uh, summarily evict an entire building full of tenants uh, and then, you know, sell the property, flip the building, mm -hmm. kind of short term. We're looking at like a five to seven. Most most like speculative Ellis Act evictions happen under like within like five years. Um, so we had a bill to try to fix that, which is unfortunately on hold. Um, but essentially to, you know, get rid of all the tenants, usually rent control tenants, right, for the reason that Liam just laid out um, and, and flip the property. Um, so that's what that is. And uh, we've lost, you know, uh, tens of thousands of rental units in Los Angeles and um, San Francisco to the Ellis Act. Um, and a lot of times those end up converted from rental housing into uh, condos or tenancies in common, which is basically ownership. Uh, I'm gonna ask this, this next question. Um, uh, I'm just going to read it. It says from an anonymous uh, questioner uh, or someone didn't want to give their 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 name. Um, I absolutely agree with the comment earlier that the onerous conditions designed to present the quote undeserving from receiving aid present obstacles to those who really need help. However, high profile issues like the fraud claims at the uh, EDD uh, unemployment scandal make it difficult for policymakers to agree to things like quote self attestation, uh, which would really help many people. How do you convince or how do you deal with the issue when trying to convince policymakers to streamline access to assistance? Yes, I can take a quick stab at that. Um, I mean, I think that the, the, the EDD fraud issue, I mean, that that's specifically what was interesting about that. And again, I'm not a, a huge expert on everything that happened with EDD, although, you know, my, I have family members who needed it. Um, but, you know, it was coming out of a few set locations. Um, I believe there was like a prison involved. There were a couple of locations, but they were basically that the, the fraud was concentrated in specific areas and that's the addresses where it was coming from, right? Uh, where all these fraudulent claims were coming from. And they shut the program off, which ended up hurting a lot of people um, who had claims in there that were completely legitimate. I mean, and orders of magnitude larger than like even the fraud itself. So I think EDD is an example of something that we don't want to repeat. Um, it's obviously, I, and, and I've talked to state legislators about this who are telling me like, I'm afraid that my, that my district staff is going to quit their jobs because they're completely overloaded with constituent issues, not being able to access 
um, EDD and not be able to access their unemployment money for months at a time, particularly those are also people who are probably going to need to put that money towards their rent. They're really desperate. So, um, you know, I don't actually think, I think it's actually not too hard to convince them because they're kind of seeing what like EDD having all these hoops to jump through what that was. And so, I mean, it is hard to convince them, but that's kind of the argument that I've always used is like, do you want another EDD on your hands with rent relief? Um, I, I'm guessing the answer is no. I also think that kind of reframing um, the case, which is like, imagine just, and Liam does this a great job of this, but just walking through what it's like for someone with all these added layers of barriers and thinking about how can you just minimize that? And like, wouldn't you give up if you had to like deal with like all these different layers? It makes it hard. And, um, and you add on layers of having multiple jobs, uh, just like it, 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 and not sure what will happen if you share this information. So I think another way of thinking about how to convince policymakers is to start with the lived experience of many, many residents who more than qualify and what that experience is like to have to apply. And uh, I think if you walk anyone through that, uh, uh, like a policymaker who is thoughtful and wants to not just create bureaucracy will go, yeah, that's, that's a lot of stuff. Um, and I think oftentimes policies are made with this good intention, but then when it gets implemented in practice, then it just becomes a complex monster that uh, even someone who has plenty of time, plenty of education, uh, plenty of resources uh, will still find challenging. So if you, if you kind of provide that counter narrative and that ability to just empathize with what that experience is like, um, I think you start there instead of saying like, let's solve for the, the, the worst apple. I would agree with that. I would think that when we go up to the Hill, we take specific examples. So something that's not happened to just, just one family or just one type of situation. But when we present it with the framing of, hey, this is so encumbering, you know, to get through this and it's affecting all of these people. And here's a few examples from a few pools of types of different, you know, um, families. And, and also, the main thing that we see that they want is, okay, well, what are, in our expertise in our field, what are the possible solutions? That's what they want um, for, for us to come with. And, and then they've told us that specifically is, okay, well, when you've presented the problems of what are your, what are your ideas for the solutions? And, you know, when we take that to them, uh, you know, I know, I know Patterson has been one of the best for us to work with. Uh, who's all, when we take it and we give them all that information, you know, he's attentive and listening and, you know, he, he, he really will move forward, you know, and if he can't help us, he'll give us the tools who can. So that's how we try to present things as an organization with, with him is who it's affecting, why it's affecting. Here's some examples of it. And here's what we'd like to do um, to start the process. Um, unfortunately, the, for us, the process is usually years in the making to get any of these solutions implemented. And so we're, we're lagged way behind the problem just because of how long it takes to maneuver it you know, through there. Uh, so we're running low on time. And so I'm just going to ask one more question uh, of everyone. Um, and if you could keep your response brief, that would be great. Um, but uh, I I'm hoping, you know, um, is there anything, anything that I haven't asked or anything that we didn't discuss uh, during this panel that you think would be important for um, folks to take away from your perspective, your experience, your, your research in terms of what's been happening over, over the past year. Um, anyone who would like to begin please, and take it away, please do. 
I'll say one quick thing that comes to my mind that I think has been um, a benefit. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily because of the pandemic, but um, the administration change. Um, we now have, you know, FHA is one of the programs that's opened up for, you know, it tends to be not only first-time homebuyers, but, you know, the lower economic um, families. And we were not allowed to do anything for DACA during, you know, the past administration. At day one, that opened up. Um, and that's one thing that we've been excited about is being able to open up, you know, the more programs for DACA, everything from, you know, some of the first-time homebuyers to FHA to some of the other, you know, the few programs out there that are designed to help. And it's opened up to DACA, which has given a whole nother pool, um, which can help some of the families. A lot of the, you know, DACA can be tied to some of the families, you know, that are into these situations you've been talking about. And so we get them coming in and saying, hey, you know, I, I'm in position to be able to, you know, buy a house and help my family that are being affected by some of these rental issues. So then we can now have more programs. So that's one of the things that we're super excited about. I would add that we often combine, you know, housing as a wealth building tool and housing as shelter and thinking about what does it look like when you bifurcate that. So it's been exciting to see kind of the, the, the movement of land trusts kind of have new energy. Um, and part of that is having kind of collective community agency and, and co-ownership. Um, and I'd look at models like that and, and reimagine L.A. as an effort to have kind of citizens um, shape what kind of where we want our money to be spent similar to like what does it look like if it's not individual homeownership similar to what constant was saying about families coming together so um i think there's a whole lot of potential in that area but we are still in a society so much about like individual homeownership which you know there's a whole system on that um but just thinking through what are those other models that are actually already happening there's like it's an informal um network it's part of existing resilience and uh, what does it look like if we shape policy based on that um that's very abstract but i'll end with that i'll keep it super fast um although i love land trust i'm on the board of the sf land trust <laughs> community land trust although that's not what i'm capacity i'm here in but I mean, really, I think that from my perspective is that, that folks in Sacramento, the governor and the state legislature, they need to hear from people who are impacted. They need to hear from people who are suffering. There are almost no renters in the state legislature, as Liam knows, because and, and as Cal Matters has studied in the past, right? Um, so, you know, they, that, they tend to get ignored, right? Even though there's 18 million of us, we're almost half the state. Um, and so if you are telling your story, if you are ready to tell your story, talk to your legislator. We can support you in that. The 10 organizations can support you. Make sure you're being heard because, you know, a lot of folks want to sweep this under the rug, particularly for renters who are not represented um, in Sacramento like they need to be. I'll let us go. I'd love to end on that note, actually. <laughs> great. Well, uh, thank you very much, everybody, for uh, joining this great discussion. Uh, appreciate it. Uh, and looking forward to turning this over to the next, uh, next, next discussion, next set of panelists. Liam and all of our panelists, thank you so much for participating in this today. This was really fascinating. And, and also anyone out there that's listening, we will be uh, running this as a video on the Capital Weekly website. And we'll also have this as our own podcast, Capital Weekly Podcast. So look for that next week. And uh, if you're interested, we also have another panel coming up in about 12 minutes uh, on the future for single family zoning. Uh, where are we going with that? Or is that, uh, is that coming to an end? So Liam, panelists, thank you so much. This is really fascinating and I really appreciate you uh, giving us your time today. Thanks so much. 
The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.